My name is Matthew Whitehouse. You're listening to The Face Podcast. Each week, we give you the face take on the biggest stories from music, movies, style and politics. We take a look at what's hot and what's not, and we give you our view on the clothes, the politics, the attitude and the romance. Hello and welcome to The Face Podcast, where I'm speaking to you today from sunny Los Angeles and I'm joined by Face Music Director David Reed, who's just returned back to London from Los Angeles, where he was at Coachella this weekend. How was the weather when you were here, Davey? Um, Well, I was in LA for like two days and it was actually really cloudy and grey when I was there. I was with someone who had never been before and we walked up to like Sunset Boulevard it's too cloudy to see the Hollywood sign, and I felt a little bit sorry oh, for them. No. But then, as soon as we got the desert uh, in Palm Springs to Coachella, it was absolutely roasting. It was like 33 was degrees it? Celsius rather than Fahrenheit, which everyone kept saying out there, obviously. <laughs> and then, so wait, so this was this was your first time at Coachella, and look, we'll get onto the big talking point, which was Frank Ocean's return to live music shortly but first perhaps most importantly how was the toilet situation and and how did it compare to glastonbury like much 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 better out there like i think there's a massive cultural difference between like a uk festival and american festival i went to tyler the creators camp Flognor festival as well in 2019 and it's just generally not as gross like i think like the brits <laughs> we really relish the kind of grottiness of a festival and kind of take pride in the fact that suffering is part of the experience whereas like Coachella is very much like actually really quite glamorous and like I think people yeah I think people like you know people saved up for it people look like they've probably spent quite a lot of time in the gym getting ready for it whereas like I guess in the UK there's more of that kind of wavy goms inspired sort of sesh gremlin culture Coachella is a much more premium experience, definitely. You mentioned that kind of um, kind of glamour. Does it live up to that sort of Instagrammy kind of glamour side? Is that the sort of reality of it as as well? Yeah, definitely. Like I think it's you know it's so so beautiful the site. Like you know you walk in, you're surrounded by these huge mountains. So you know in the background is the sun's going down. You can see the sun going down past the mountains, and you know the weather's because the weather's so hot people aren't wearing that much so people have probably been going to the gym for that reason and yeah there's a lot of people who seem to be there for the gram a bit like I think it's such a flex to be there you know everyone in the world is talking about that weekend and you're there so there is that feeling but I think one thing I'd say is like people generally seem really excited about the music and like really Mm. passionate like you know this weekend the headliners, aside from Frank, there was Bad Bunny and Blackpink. So, you know, a sort of Latin trap slash reggaeton artist, a Spanish language artist, and then a kind of K-pop group. And they're kind of quite adventurous in a way for like festival yeah. headliners. So like it does definitely draw like proper music lovers. It's not all, you know, people just flexing for social media. I think there's dedicated stands who go, definitely. Mm. Well, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the the music then. Who were some of the most kind of notable or, or some of your favourite people that you saw while you were there? Probably Jay Paul. And that was, had a slightly similar narrative to Frank in the sense that it was this kind of elusive genius who everyone presumed was going to pull out at some point. Yeah. Everyone couldn't believe it was actually happening. So to backpedal a bit for anyone listening who isn't, like that familiar with who Jay Paul is. 
Jay Paul emerged at the very beginning of the last decade with just a couple of demo tracks, which really kind of set the world alight. Um, kind of set the tone for the decade in terms of merging kind of R&B and pop with more left field production. The kind of gap between pop and R&B and so-called alternative music really started to get smaller um, during the 2010s. Uh, he then had a bunch of demos leaked, uh, obviously without his permission. They ended up on Bandcamp. Everyone thought it was his album. He managed to get it taken down, but obviously it's the internet, so everyone had these tracks. Mm. He actually got really traumatized by the experience of having all his unfinished work out there to the point where he kind of revealed late, much, many years later in a note that it had quite a big impact on his mental health. He's kind of been kind of in the shadows a bit ever since. And he has slowly kind of eked back into the spotlight. He, he appeared in Atlanta, Donald Glover's show in series four. He released two tracks quietly as a double B-side, I think in 2019. But this was his first ever live performance. So, you know, for someone who has revealed they suffer from acute anxiety, for your first ever live performance to be Coachella, yeah. the most talked about, most covered festival in the world and for it to be you know live streamed was a really really bold move and i presumed that okay there's no way he's going to do that for his first ever gig like there's going to be warm-up shows in london or new york york or whatever but um yeah no that was his first ever show and yeah it was it was kind of like it warmed up like he came on he had this band with him who I think all the members are from the Paul Institute, which is a record label that he runs with his brother, AK Paul, who was in the band. Mm. So it was like his close circle of like trusted musicians formed his band. And like the first five songs or something, I was like, oh no, I don't think this is going very well. Like he was quite sort of still. The sound was like maybe a little bit muddy. Like the tent was packed and actually people started leaving. So, which meant I could get in the tent and get a better view. But then it's something just kind of clicked maybe the last four or five tracks and he just, he did this like slow ballad and he sat down and there's a point where there's a gap after he sang, you could hear everyone just cheering him and you could see this smile, you know, appear on his face. And then, yeah, the last couple of tracks, he just belted them out. And the final tune straight out of Mumbai mm -hmm. is a song, which was one of the songs which leaked. It became a bit of a fan favorite. And that is like a full blown like festival banger. And that was like the final song. And that was really euphoric. And then like afterwards, you could see he just had this massive smile on his face. And as he was leaving the stage, when his mates ran over and gave him a big hug. Uh. And he's just smacked. And it was like, yeah, it was like, it was like really emotional. And like, I think it's like a glass half full, I would describe it as, because like, you know, it was a little bit stiff at the beginning, but he's got weekend two of Coachella coming up. So, like, if you can come on with a little bit more confidence, and I think it'll be amazing. Mm -hmm. What was the crowd like out of interest? Was it all kind of aging millennials like you and I? Or <laughs> were the <they> younger people? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? The, generally, at Coachella, the crowd was a lot older than I presumed. Mm. Like, I kind of had this preconception of it being a bunch of, like, college kids and, and mosh pits and frat boys and right. stuff. Um, and it isn't, it isn't like everyone's kind of like, I would say like late twenties to mid thirties is like the main group, probably because it's so expensive to go there, mm. like to get like accommodation out in Palm Springs to to fly out to either LA or Palm Springs and then travel there. Mm. I mean, the, the the food and the drinks and stuff is crazy. You know, someone I was with paid $6 for a pack of rolling papers, like, you know, <laughs> like six. I think that's the most I've 
ever been fleeced at any festival, <laughs> like $6 for like literally some paper. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So the, the crowd is a little bit old and it definitely was for Jay, actually. And I was with a bunch of people and people who were kind of late 20s onwards were like really, really excited. And then there's a couple of people who were in their early 20s who literally didn't know who he was, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Well, look, from, from one elusive, challenging performer to another, let's talk about Frank then, because that was obviously the big the big draw this weekend, or at least the most exciting announcement, I guess. What was the sort of um, chatter going into his set? What were the sort of rumours on the ground before he performed? I mean, everyone was kind of talking about it mm. as soon as the festival started, really. And the rumours were all like kind of unnerving, but were kind of building up the sense of excitement towards it. I mean, there was, there was a rumour which that he was generally having a bit of a wobble at rehearsals in LA, that he wasn't really showing up to rehearsals. I think there was the rumour about him having an injury to his ankle, which was confirmed by a source after the set. There was a rumour that a tunnel had been dug underground so that he didn't have to walk through the festival site. <laughs> so he could just <laughs> get in his van and go into a tunnel <laughs> and walk straight to the site. And there's obviously rumours that he just wasn't going to do it. And like <laughs> when we got to maybe about three hours before his set and that's when we started getting WhatsApp messages saying he's cancelled, he's pulled out. And I think what triggered that was YouTube were meant to live stream it and then YouTube announced yeah. that they wouldn't be live streaming it and everyone started to fear the worst at that point. And that was shortly before Bjork played and Bjork had claimed that she'd been selected by Frank personally to perform before her. Interesting. Well, and so look, why don't you set the scene for us as it, as he kind of kicked off his performance? Cause he started the show Almost an hour late, is that right? Yeah, like 57 minutes late or something. I mean, the thing is that is there was quite a big gap after Bjork set anyway. Do you know what I mean? It was like quite a long wait. And, you know, there was fans who were queuing up on at the festival site at 9am that day. The doors opened at midday. And as soon as the doors opened, like a, quite a lot of fans, there's videos of it, like legged it and ran to the stage to, to make sure they could get the front mm-hmm. for Frank. So they were waiting 11 hours or something. Wow. You know, like I don't even, like it was hot that day. It was sunny, you know? Yeah. So like it felt like a long time to wait. And like when he did initially come on stage, like there was just, he there was no music or no sound or anything. Yeah. It was like just a circular of people who I believe were dressed with balaclavas or hoods, and bulletproof vests just kind of marching in a circle. And that's all it was for about five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. In which case, like, that's when people started, like, heckling a little bit. Like, some guy was like, there's no music, man. This is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was the... the, So the thing that's come out subsequently, right, is that he was apparently going to open the show with an ice rink. And these people are all going to be ice skaters, is what I've read. And then he decided to melt the ice rink an hour before the show do a new set and so then the the ice skaters just walked instead that's what i've read yeah do you know what i kind of had heard an ice rink rumor and all this stuff about you know canning an ice rink digging a tunnel underground it all seems completely preposterous until like you like sort of process just how mad the set was and i think like i want to preface this in saying that like i don't necessarily think that like this was a terrible set overall. I think it was a disaster, but it was a spectacular disaster. Yeah. And it was not one which I regret watching at all. 
and all found boring necessarily. So yeah, I guess next what happened is when he eventually came on, um, you know, the, the set was kind of quite cluttered. There seemed to be a lot of mirrors. There's the kind of the people still walking around a lot. The screens kind of almost covered the stage entirely. So you couldn't really see him or the band. You're kind of watching the screens, which I didn't really mind because when you get to a festival, you don't really watch the actual people on stage. So you end up just looking at the screens. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that was an acknowledgement of that, what the festival experience is like. But yeah, he came on, he performed a bunch of songs, um, some great songs. Like he did White Ferrari, he did Crack Rock from Channel Orange. He did Bad Religion. Like you forget how great some of the lyrics are of these songs, but all of them like really different, almost cover versions. So the live band, you know, they're kind of almost like, there's kind of a kraut rock thing going on with these kind of like, sort of looping arpeggio sims. There was a part where it turned into this kind of post-rock kind of punky jam. You know, everything was kind of really quite different. Um, and then the set was kind of like, it was very retro-futuristic. There was a lot of kind of big analog machinery. It kind of almost looked like a kind of sort of 1970s sci-fi of a spaceship or something like that. And there's a thing he kept doing where he kept going up to like band members and what, look like technicians and chatting to them and pointing at things. I couldn't tell whether or not at this point it's like, are things genuinely going south and is he freaking out or is this, is he being meta and is he kind of like sort of playing on the fact that the narrative has been that he's going to find this hard to pull off. That's interesting. How were people reacting in the crowd at this point? You mentioned someone kind of was getting agitated when the music didn't start straight away, but were people responding to it well or were people kind of finding it quite difficult? I mean, there's like a group of people who were just chatting really loudly and obviously were kind of bored by this point and they were, you know, people were just asking to be quiet um, sort of thing and I kind of moved forward to get away from them. But then the group next to me on my right were like, there's obviously a group of friends who were really excited about this and they were singing along and they were just like, just really embracing it. It was kind of hard to sing along because the, the kind of melodies were in different parts of the song and stuff. It started to kind of... So far, kind of so good, even though it was disorientating and like, you know, Frank had like his blue puffer hood pulled quite far over his face. There's a point when he stopped to talk to the crowd and that was actually really quite moving and kind of interesting because he explained that, look, like I'm I'm not here because I'm promoting a new album. He did say not that there isn't a new album, which everyone cheered for, but he told a story about him and his brother and his brother passed away in 2020. And he said that him and his brother used to go to Coachella. He said he always hated Coachella because it's really dusty and kind of not his scene. But um, he has this really fond memory of him and his brother in Taco from Odd Future going to see Ray Shrimmer and dancing to Ray Shrimmer. Um, so that was obviously really moving. And that kind of made, dispelled the kind of feeling that he didn't give a shit. But then he kind of goes away and then there's a DJ set suddenly and this isn't that far in the set. And then it was DJ Crystal Mess, who's actually a really great DJ from Paris, which kind of proves yet again, he's known for having his finger on the pulse culturally in terms of like underground stuff going on. Um, so that was a classy choice. Like she's great. She started out like she, she dropped Born Slippy by Underworld and then it had like fragments of Lost by Frank Ocean in it, which was kind of annoying because it's like, I kind of wanted to hear him do that <laughs> and then it can the camera's just like zoomed in in this security guard at the front um a male security guard and then he just started like twerking <laughs> and this went on for ages so it's like this just like pumping dj set with this like twerking security guard and this i don't know how long it went on for but it felt like a very long time um at this point and people weren't really dancing and i didn't really get 
the sense that people were really feeling it, like we hadn't had enough Frank for there being an interlude. And then I think it got really weird after that. In what sense? Because like he kind of came back on and it was just a bit more of like, at one point the drummer was hugging. Do you know when he turned up to Met Gala and he had that green doll? Yeah. That baby. So like the drummer was just like hugging that green doll, the green baby really tight. And then eventually Frank came on and started cuddling the green doll. I think Frank did not acknowledge, he laughed, like, this is chaos, like, the set or whatever. But then basically the biggest sin for me was what he did next is because he started, like, lip-syncing and miming songs. So he did, like, Nikes, and he did a couple of songs like that where he wasn't even holding the microphone. So he was just, like, he was just up in the camera, just, like, rapping and singing and, and smiling about it. And that was kind of like, oh, he started that by he brought on a little kid who was kind of dressed a bit like him to mime one of his songs um, and play the piano. And then he came on and said, oh, this is, I can't remember the kid's name. He's playing my inner child. It's like, yeah, we, we could, we gathered that. Um, and then he, then he mimed for a while after that. So it was like the miming really, really, that pissed me off because it was like, you know, it was like, okay, so are you, were you miming the whole time? Have we just been, you know, mm. did you sing White Ferrari or mm. were they pre-recorded vocals? It kind of made me think about festival sets in general, like over recent years and more and more, I've kind of gone to see big acts. I've been like, it, to what extent is this live vocals? I feel like technology's made a leap. So it's easier for artists to kind of have a live sound and back and track. I mean, with rappers, that's become quite extreme, actually. Like, you know, Playboy Carty, for example, he doesn't even, like, try and pretend that his voice sounds like it does on his records. Like, he just essentially just screams over the top of his own music yeah, and jumps around. Yeah, yeah. And, like, no one cares. No one, no one, like, people still love his live experience. It's more about being together and hearing the, the songs that all the fans love together, seeing someone having an amazing stage presence, having an amazing light show. And almost like Playboy Coy is the hype man to his own music. So I didn't know if this was Frank being cheeky and acknowledging the kind of facade of modern live performance. Again, it's like, is, you know, he's such a considered artist. That I'm like, is everything deliberate or has he just freaked out and decided to, you know, not even pretend that he's in my mind? Who knows? But that was the part which like, I couldn't really get with and then i think and one thing to point out as well is there's like maybe three minute gaps between each song mm, mm. so it was like but just complete silence you know so that's kind of like you know when you wait so long that, that obviously that's a little frustrating and then eventually there's a bit of silence then we just heard mikey said oh i've been told it's curfew so that's the end of the show and what was the, what was the reaction from people as they were leaving how did people feel about it as they were filing out of the festival it was weird because the band kind of hung around on stage and the light stayed on. So everyone just started walking away. Everyone was just leaving. And I was like, no, we need to wait. Like he's, he's going to do an encore. They're going to, he's going to come back. And he didn't. Um, initially people seemed super disappointed, like really disappointed. I was with someone who has quite a strong emotional connection to Frank's music and hasn't seen him live before. And he was like really, really good, actually really disappointed. I kind of spoke to someone who also is a big fan who said they left the set. I think the next day, like after everyone woke up and everyone had time to process it, that's when it was like, oh, actually, like, like as soon as I woke up, I was thinking about it. I was like, couldn't stop thinking about different little aspects or was that meant to be symbolic of this? 
oh, actually, that version of White Ferrari is kind of amazing. Uh, and the discourse around it, and suddenly it's like, oh, it just was actually really interesting. Like, it was kind of, like, quite thought-provoking and quite gripping. So really, really mixed feelings, yeah. Well, I guess it, it's... And, and that leads me to think about in the context of a, a festival headline set. And I guess the question to you is, is, is do, do we want our festival headliners to be interesting and thought-provoking, or, or do we want them to do what a festival headliner traditionally would do, which is appeal to the casual fans at the back who might know a couple of the big songs, appeal to that big crowd where you need to speak to people bigger than just your own audience. You know, should should a festival headliner be booked on their artistry and their kind of how interesting they are, or should they deliver a set that kind of appeals to everybody who's there to, to watch as a casual fan as well? I mean, I'm kind of up for, it's Frank Ocean, I'm up for him kind of messing around with it. I'd rather he did what he did than he came on and, just played 20 tracks which sounded pristine and said hey like Coachella you having a good time tonight like everyone at the left can make some noise you know yeah. what I mean like <laughs> I, I like I would rather he'd done this and I think yeah like it's it, it's Frank Ocean like you know he last performed in 2017 he did a, a small string of shows including Lovebox and that was like really divisive because it was so slow paced and so sparse and there wasn't that much crowd interaction or whatever but then that is like one of them shows which people still love saying they were there. Like people was like, oh yeah, like I was at Lovebox. Oh, what do you think of Lovebox? Like people still talk about that six years later. So yeah. it's like, like which other act can come to London and do a show? And then like six years later, people are still bragging that they were there. Mm-hmm. It's like, and people will be talking about the fact that they were at Frank Ocean at Coachella in 10 years time. So like, I think he's made a kind of impact and he's made an impression. Mm. It's funny. I've been reading a lot about the, the fights that have been happening at theater shows. You know, there's this kind of this wave of stuff kicking off at the theater in the UK where people are talking about fights. And I was thinking about it in the context of COVID and the way that we're kind of renegotiating or, or refiguring out the way that we interact with people after having been locked up and, and distanced from people for so long. And I almost wonder if artists are doing it too with the way that they perform. You know, you mentioned it in the way that it's it's meta. And I think probably the most successful tour of the last year has been the 1975 tour, which has been brilliantly staged and, and brilliantly received and was incredibly meta. And I wonder if Frank would have done a show that felt like this had he done it in 2020 or if it has been shaped by the pandemic and that sort of renegotiating how we interact with one another as humans and and, and by virtue of that how a performer interacts with an audience and, and questions what that interaction is and what it what it means i wonder if it would have been a very different set had he just done it in 2020 yeah right like the fact that he was kind of closed off and hidden and there's all these the screens submerging it people complained about that but i actually thought that was kind of clever you know you mentioned 1975's uh stage show and there was an interview in the guardian with the producer of that stage show and they said that the shape of everything is supposed to fit tiktok screens so it's like it's like in rosalia's show as well so like currently like people have acknowledged that part of the incentive to pay a ridiculous amount of money to go to a giga festival is so that you can get content to post on your social media. And that's part of what attracts people to go now. And so like, I can see Frank being like, well, you know, how many people in the audience can actually see me anyway? And how Mm. many people are going to be watching the screens and filming the screens? Let's make the whole thing a screen. 
So I don't think, I guess, getting to your point, I don't think that it was just chaotic purely because it was unrehearsed or whatever like that. Yeah. I do think that there was, knowing him, there must have been some element of uh, intention behind the kind of awkwardness of it mm. or the provocativeness of it. Well, look, look, let's finish now with with kind of uh, your your overriding impressions and, and what your take from Coachella. What was your what was your favorite favorite set you saw, and, and kind of what your your overriding memory of the of the weekend will be? Um, you know, my favorite, even though Jay was a little bit uh, wobbly to start with, I think like uh, Straight Out Mumbai being played was like yeah. that was probably the highlight. Yeji, the artist, the Korean American artist, who's just put out an album with a hammer. That was like super, super cool. She had great choreography and like kind of the theme of like strength and like flexing biceps and stuff like that. Um, and that w- that was really cool and kind of made me hear music in a different way. My overriding memory is uh, either the absolutely beautiful, breathtaking sunsets, or paying six dollars for some rolling papers. <laughs> <laughs> what was going in the rolling paper out of interest? Hey, it's all legal up there. It's fine. <laughs> My name is Matthew Whitehouse, editor of The Face. The Face podcast is produced by Frontier Productions. Music by Lewis Culture, recorded at the Standard London. <laughs>